But this morning, I want to convince you that community, the way the Bible talks about it, this thing called the church, real community, the thing that you were designed for, it does not work if you want it on convenience. It only works if we're willing to go all in and commit. And honestly, I think this is where the church gets in big trouble because one of the things that churches do is we're like, how do we get as many people as we possibly can to be a part of this thing called the church and community? I know we'll lower the bar and we'll make commitment as easy as possible. That doesn't work. Guys, 40 million people have left the church in the last 25 years. That's the largest exodus in the last, or that's the largest exodus in that short amount of time in American history. So it, I, let me, let me uh, tell you a secret, and I'll just say the quiet part out loud. Churches don't, the, the problem with, with churches is it's not that they're asking too much of their people. They're actually asking too little. They're, they're asking, and, and here's, here's what I mean by that. I'm not asking you to do more in the church. I'm asking you to be more as the church. You understand the difference between that? I'm not asking you to just show up as a crowd to events every Sunday. I'm asking you to be there for each other through the thick and thin of life. That's what real community is. So if that, with that being said, if biblical community takes commitment and not convenience, then what kind of commitment does it take, right? How, how do we get to this life-giving community? And I want to explore this in 1 Peter this morning. I think we can see at least three different commitments that if we say yes to, I think we can have the kind of community that everyone is created for, that everyone desires, and that everyone craves. The first commitment is this. Commit to loving each other like family because our community lasts forever. Commit to loving each other like family because our community lasts forever. So 1 Peter 2, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 22 through 23 says this. Having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, so we see in that text uh, that the first commitment we need to make is to love each other. It's not rocket science, right? We need to love each other. But I want us to dial in and see why Peter says we should love each other. Notice in verse 23, Peter says we are to love each other. Why? Since we have been born again. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say love each other because that's the right thing to do. Love each other because you're Christians. Love each other because you're a churchgoer. Love each other because you've been baptized and have all the right theological answers. No, 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 no. He says love each other because you've been born again. Again, well, what does that mean? Well, to put it simply, to be born again means you have a new identity in the family of God. I mean, think about it. When you were brought into this world and you were physically born, what were you born into? You were born into a corporation or a business or a company or a club. You were born into a family. And the same thing is true when we're born again spiritually. When we become Christians, we enter into the family of God. Well, how do you become born again? Peter kind of alludes to it. He says, having your souls purified and obeying the truth. What does that mean? Having your souls purified, that's repentance. You repent of your sins and God comes and cleans you of your sins. You're purified. Obeying the truth, 
He's not talking about being saved through obedience. Obeying the truth means to believe in Jesus. The truth is the word of God. It's the gospel. That's what we're saved by. So how do you become born again? You repent of your sins and you believe in the gospel. And when you are born again, you get a new identity where you are part of the family of God. And I think Peter phrases it this way because he's trying to say, hey, when we love each other, it should look like the way family loves each other because that's what we are. We are family. We are the family of God. It's what we've been born into. We're born again into the family of God. And make no mistake, guys, this is not some metaphor that, that Peter's using here. This is a spiritual reality. We're not just like a family. We are a family. What connects us is something stronger than the physical DNA that you have with your physical family because what connects us is the very blood of Jesus. We're a family. And this is why Peter says we're called to love each other earnestly. I love that word earnestly. If you look it up in the Greek, it literally means to be stretched like a rubber band. In other words, the way in which we should love each other, it should stretch us. Why? Because that's familial love. When you love your family, it stretches you. Because this is not the kind of love where we just say nice things to each other on a Sunday and then like, oh, I'll pray for you, and then we never do, <laughs> right? That this is a knit and gritty kind of love where I'm willing to stretch myself. I'm, I'm gonna stretch my time and my capacity and my home and even my wallet to show you that I love you. Why? Because we're family. That's the way family love each other. Now, you might wanna say, well, John, I don't know if I can love people in the church that way. Like, have you met people at Salt Church? They're really hard to love. And I just want to throw out my hands and say, welcome to family. If you go to Webster's Dictionary and you read, look up the word family and you read the definition, you know what it's going to say? People that are hard to love. <laughs> family is hard to love, but yet we don't give up on family because they're family. Why would we give up on the church just because it's full of hard people to love? Right? Like, every family's got that black sheep that's always going to come to you when they're in trouble. Guess what? The church has people like that, and we need to love them. Every family's got some crazy uncle. At dinner, he's going to say some inappropriate things. He's probably going to spout off some outlandish political statement and judge you for having a tattoo. Guess what? The church is full of crazy uncles like that, that we should love, right? And if you don't think Saul Church has a crazy uncle, it probably means you are one. Um, Every family has that cousin too, right? That's like socially awkward and weird. And it's like, I don't know how to have a normal conversation with you. I don't know how to love you where you're at, right? Guess what? The church is full of weird, socially awkward people too. And it doesn't mean we run away from that. We love them. If you're from Alabama, you probably have somebody that you're socially awkwardly attracted to. That's your cousin, right? The church has that. No, that one doesn't work. All right, um, but hey, if you are in this room and you're married, you married your brother or your sister in Christ. I'm just saying, um, just, yeah, that's biblical truth. Um, anyway, guys, the thing about familial love is that you never give up on family because you're family. You always love them. I'm sure you guys have heard it said, friends come and go, but family is forever. Guys, in the church, that's not just a cliche, that's true. Notice what Peter says specifically in verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. What Peter means there is that when you're born, you're born into a physical body, and you will one day die. 
But when you're born again, you're born into a spiritual body, the body of Christ, where together we don't just share physical life, we share eternal life. That's what it means to be imperishable. The reason Peter brings this up here is because he's trying to say, hey, guys, if you can't figure out how to love each other now, it's going to be an awkward eternity, right? Heaven is not you just chilling with Jesus in your mansion with your Xbox and some of your closest friends, right? Heaven is filled with the family of God. And if you can't learn to love your brothers and sisters in Christ now, what do you think heaven's going to be like? You're going to hate it because it's filled with time and eternity spent with the church, with the community. I don't have a verse for this, but I'm pretty sure you can't just ghost a Christian just because you don't like them in heaven. Like, that's not going to be a thing. If our future is a family that loves each other forever, then why would we not commit to loving each other in the present? Do you guys know what they do uh, to preserve the Declaration of Independence? Um, it's fascinating. Uh, it's put in this like titanium case uh, where it's got bulletproof glass and uh, it also has like uh, some chemicals in it that refract uh, bad light uh, to preserve. And then they fill it with argon gas. I think that's how you say that, argon? Argon gas. Um, and uh, it's supposed to preserve the parchment. And then they have these sensors that you use on like the Hubble telescope that they've put in there that can detect whether the ink is fading down to the minute. And then when it's not on display, they put it down in this vault uh, so that it's protected uh, from the light. I got all this from Nicolas Cage and National Treasure, so you know it's accurate. Um, But seriously, why do they do all of that to preserve the Declaration of Independence? Why do they meticulously go through the loving care to preserve the Declaration of Independence? It's so that it lasts for future generations, right? Because here's the thing. One day, the Declaration of Independence is going to crumble into dust. But do you know what's going to rise up out of the dust and last forever? It's us. It's the family of God. It's this community. And yet, how many of us treat each other with the same meticulously loving care that those who preserve the Declaration of Independence do? Most of the time, I think Christians treat each other like I treat my kids' artwork. Yay, this looks amazing. How do I throw this away as fast as possible? Right? Right? That's, that's what we do to each other as Christians. But if we're going to last forever, our love should be a love that's earnest, a love that is for family. Our commitment to each other as a community should be an earnest love because family is forever. But what does this look like practically? Peter's going to move on, uh, which leads me to my second commitment as a community. Commit to getting rid of sins that will kill our community. Commit to getting rid of sins that will kill our community. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Now that we've been born again into this family, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So what I, I, the reason I think Peter transitions here, he says, hey, if, if we're going to love each other earnestly, if that's going to be a reality, then that means there's some things we can't do. There, there's some things we got to stop doing. There's some things we got to put away. And I don't think Peter's randomly picking a list of sins here to just be like, stop doing these things. I think he specifically lists out these things because these particular sins are community killers. They will kill our community. So I want to be helpful this morning. So I'm going to actually walk through these five things 
and show how they can kill our community if we're not careful to put them off. And as I walk through this list, I encourage you guys, see where you are at on this list. See the things that maybe you need to put away personally and begin to give life to this community and not kill it. So the first uh, community killer is this. It's malice. Malice. Malice is a hatred, right? It's a meanness. It's a nastiness towards somebody. It's spite. It's a desire to hurt people. So how do you know if malice is in your heart? How do you know if you have malice towards somebody? Well, ask yourself this question. When someone we don't like gets blessed, or I'm sorry, uh, when someone we don't like actually has something bad happen to them, how do we react? Do we, do we celebrate when something bad happens to someone we don't like? Right? Oh, I saw, I saw that person uh, getting fired from their job. Clearly that was gonna happen. I, I feel so justified that I'm right about that because that person is a loser, right? Oh, that person got dissed on social media for making those statements and now look at their comment thread and everybody's just like heaping critical assault against this person. I'm not gonna comment, but pass the popcorn. I can't wait to see this guy get roasted, right? We do that. And then another question we can ask is the reverse of this, right? How do you feel when someone you don't like gets blessed? Do you get frustrated? Oh, that person actually finally got married? It sucks to be that person. That's gonna be a long 50 years, like, right? Oh, oh, that person got promoted and that person got hired at that company? That's gonna tank their bottom line. That person's the worst. Do you guys see how th- this is not okay? This will kill our community will create animosity towards one another. And if we want to have a community that loves each other, then we have to put away malice and show kindness and generosity and assume the best about each other. The second community killer is deceit. Deceit. Uh, Deceit is skewing the facts or telling lies. And I think the interesting thing about deceit is that it's not just something that we can do to other people. Deception is something that we can do to ourselves. And I think one of the greatest deceptions as it relates to community, is that we've convinced ourselves that we don't need the church in order to follow Jesus, right? Like I run into people all the time. Oh, I love Jesus. I, I don't love the church, not so much, <laughs> right? I, or I really don't need the church in order to practice my faith, right? These are common statements in our culture. And guys, I love you enough this morning to tell you that that is just a straight up lie, right? You, you, in America, we have this skewed vision of the church where it's like, I can follow Jesus, but I can take or leave the church. Guys, no, that that doesn't work. And I want to be clear on this. You're not a Christian just simply by belonging to a church. And yet at the same time, guys, the New Testament has no category for a Christian who doesn't belong to the church. Right? If If you are a Christian you are part of the family of God. And if we're family, you can't say, well, God's my father, but all his sons and daughters, my brothers and sisters, nope, I'm not gonna have a relationship with them. If you get adopted into a family, you can't just have a one-way relationship with the parents and ignore your new brothers and sisters. It doesn't work that way. And let me say this as plainly as I can. You legit can't follow Jesus without other Christians, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Did you guys know that Jesus in the New Testament gives 60 different commands that start with or end with one another? Which means the command that he's telling you to do is impossible to do on your own. You need other people in order to do it, right? In other words, these one another commands, they're commands that say, do this together. Y'all do this together, right? Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a group project. 
And if you love Jesus, you will grow in your love for the church. Those are not mutually exclusive. We want to be a community that loves, and we need to speak the truth against deceptions like this that would harm us. The third uh, community killer is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. I think the, our, our world gets their definition of hypocrisy all wrong. The culture will often say, look at those Christians. Look at them go to church. I know their lives. They're a bunch of sinners. What a bunch of hypocrites. And here's the thing. That's actually not hypocrisy. That's called being authentic. Why? Because the church is precisely a place for sinners. Jesus says, I have not come for the righteous. I've come for the sinners. Jesus is of no help to you unless you admit that you're a sinner, right? Saying, oh, those Christians are hypocrites because they're sinners is the same thing as saying, oh, that hospital is full of a bunch of hypocrites. They say they promote health, but they're full of a bunch of sick people. What? Like, that's the point of a hospital. It's supposed to have sick people in it. The point of a church is supposed to have sinners in it, right? Because we're saying it's not us, it's Jesus. What makes you a hypocrite isn't saying I'm a Christian who sins. What makes you a hypocrite is I'm a Christian, but I don't sin anymore and I've arrived and I don't need Jesus anymore. I can just move on and I'm righteous and I'm good. That's what makes you a hypocrite. A hypocrite isn't somebody who's saying I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I'm also a sinner. That's acknowledging that you need Jesus. That's being authentic. See, if we're, if we're going to be hypocrites, it'll make this community fake and plastic. We want a community that is loving, and it's going to require us to be real and open about our sins and who we are and where we're at. The fourth community killer is envy. Envy. Envy is jealousy. It's coveting. It's a desiring to have what other people have. And the ninth commandment forbids it while social media promotes it, Right? I've never gone on social media and then gotten off thinking, man, I am so much more content now than when I got on social media, right? I'm always like, I'm greedy and anxious and selfish. Like, I'm envying, right? Because chances are I saw somebody and I'm like, man, I wish I had their job or I wish I had their vacation or I wish I had their house or I wish like my kids didn't inherit all of my uncoordinated skills and that they would dominate in the sports that that guy's kids are, Right? And after 10 minutes of scrolling, I'm just, it leads to envy. And guys, full confession, even pastors can get envious. We get envious of other people's churches all the time. Why did they get a building and we don't? Why are other people going to that church and we don't? Full confession, like we deal with that. Envy is still a real thing even for pastors. But it's a community killer, guys, because it turns people into complainers. And there's nothing worse than being around somebody who's complaining. It just makes the community sour and it drives everyone away. We want to be a community of love, then we have to put away envy and learn to be thankful and grow in contentment. The fifth and final community killer is slander. Slander. Slander is tearing a person down. It's belittling them. And in your anger and frustration, you go after the person's character. You tear them down. Here's the thing I've noticed about slander over the years. Almost everyone I've met, including myself, will never admit that they are slandering somebody. But yet they are very quick to call somebody else's actions slander when in, when in reality it's not. Let me give you some examples of this. Some people might say, I didn't slander my, my husband or my wife. I just voiced a bunch of my frustrations to my friends, and now they all think that, that my spouse is the worst. But I was just venting. That's all I was doing. No, that's called gossip, and that's a cousin to slander, and it's just as destructive, right? 
Another example might be, I, I didn't slander that person. I was just joking. They don't have thick skin. They don't know how to, how to have a good time. I was just joking. No, if you tear somebody down, that's slander. And you can't throw out joking as a trump card to deflect that, right? But we can also be too quick, I think, to call out what other people do to us and just label that as slander when in reality it's not. For example, somebody might say, oh, you disagreed with my idea for the church that I had, so therefore you are slandering me. No, if, if I disagree with your idea on the merits of the idea, that's just called debating passionately. Now, if I disagreed with your idea because you're, and I said you're an idiot, that's called slander, right? But if I'm just disagreeing with your idea based on the idea, we have to have the freedom to do that. You can't just call that slander, right? Or an, another example might be, oh, you slandered me because you called me out on my sin. I don't know if that's slander. That sounds like a loving brother and sister that's caring for you and doesn't want to see you go down a destructive path. They're trying to help you. Church, the reality is is we need to be really, really, really patient in these situations. If someone thinks that we have slandered them, we shouldn't just be quick to dismiss that. We should listen to them. We should examine that situation. If, If we think someone else has slandered us, we shouldn't walk into that conversation automatically assuming that we saw all the details the right way and that, and that we are, would never be guilty of what that person did. And so we, we cast them in a really bad light. And no matter what we do, guys, let's not downplay the sin of slander. Did you guys know the Greek word for devil literally means slander? That means when we slander each other, guys, we're literally using the language of the devil himself. We're using satanic language against each other. And in our culture, especially in church culture, we kind of rank these sins in our, in, in our spheres, right? Like, you know, uh, sexual abuse, pornography, getting drunk, uh, you know, murder, lying. Like, we would, we would put those maybe at the top of our list when it comes to, like, socially acceptable or uh, unacceptable sins, right? And I'm not saying you should rank sins, but what I find fascinating is that we would never put slander at the top of our list of the most unacceptable sins. Usually, slander is very socially acceptable. And yet, it is the very language of the demonic. Because instead of slandering, let's be a church that seeks love through encouraging each other, showing honor towards one another. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Guys, these are community killers. And we've got no shot at being the church if we let them go unchecked. The last commitment. The last commitment is to commit to worshiping Jesus, for he builds our community. Commit to worshiping Jesus, for he builds our community. So picking back up the text, 1 Peter 2, I want to read verses 4 through 10. It says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word 
as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, so in this text, what Peter's doing is he's shifting his language. He's shifting out of the family dynamic of you're born again, you're like newborn babies craving milk, and now he's going to shift into saying, hey, you're like a temple. You're actually the people of God. And the thing that he wants to conjure up in our minds is this idea of worship. When you think of the temple, you should think of worship. When you think of being the people of God or the nation of God, we should also think worship because God set up Israel in in your Old Testament for the purpose of worshiping him and drawing all people into Israel that they may worship God as well. The whole theme that Peter's trying to drive here in this passage is that we've been brought together as this thing called the church. Our community exists for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to worship Jesus. That's why we've been brought together. But what I find fascinating is not just who we are worshiping, which is Jesus, but how we are worshiping, because that would have rattled the minds of the original hears of First Peter. He's saying, hey, you don't have to go to this holy city called Jerusalem anymore and go into the temple and worship. The temple is wherever you guys are at, together worshiping, because you guys are the temple as the people. This building, the Campus Commons, it's not the church. You didn't come to church this morning. We are the church as we've come together. It's the people, right? The house of God is not some sacred space built with stones, The house of God is people who are made sacred by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We are um, made sacred as we worship God together. See, worship is no longer about uh, going to a particular kind of place. Worship is about becoming a particular kind of people. But what does it mean to worship? What, what, What should this look like in our community? I think the text is gonna give us two very specific descriptions. First, Verse 35 says, we are like living stones being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Why? Check this. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That that is one of the descriptions that Peter's using here for worship. But what does it mean? Does that mean we start killing animals in here uh, as our spiritual sacrifice of worship? No, I think Hebrews 13, 16 is actually going to give us a helpful clue as to what Peter means here when he uses that word spiritual sacrifices. Uh, Hebrews 13, 16 says this, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For why? Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what does it mean to offer spiritual sacrifices? It means to do good for people. It means to share what you have with them. That's worship. The second way we worship is in verse 9. It says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Why? This is the second way we worship, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love the way Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says it. It says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Guys, notice the plural language there. This is it. Worship is a group project. Do people around you know that God has brought you out of the darkness of your sin and into the light of his grace? 
What's the point of proclaiming the excellencies of what God has done for you if no one is around to hear it? When we worship Jesus, guys, it's not just an individual thing. When we worship, it is an invitation for others to join us in our worship, for others to join you in your worship that they too might have redemption in Christ. And if I can get practical here, at Soul Church, we have two primary rhythms for you to worship as a community. One is on Sunday morning, you're in it right now, we call it the gathering. The second is scattering throughout the week in what we call home groups or connection groups. Both of these rhythms uh, will give you opportunities to worship. Um, I love, uh, in one of our home groups, uh, there's a bunch of people getting together to throw a baby shower for a young mom. Why? To show their love for her. Guys, that's a spiritual sacrifice. They're doing good. They're sharing what they have. That's worship together. We've had so many college students sign up for connection groups, especially on the girl side. And there's been many females who aren't on our staff, who aren't college students, who are saying, I'm going to sacrifice a night a week in order to see college girls get discipled. Guys, that's sharing, that's doing good, sharing what they have. That's offering a spiritual sacrifice. That's worship in the context of scattering. One of the things I love to do every week when I worship with you guys, and now I've let you in on a secret, so everybody's going to give me awkward looks when I do this, but um, on on our worship gathering, I'll, I'll oftentimes go in the back so that I can observe you guys worshiping. Because when I see you guys worshiping, it's an invitation for me to worship. Because here's the thing, I know your guys' weeks. I know your months. I know your, your, your years. I know what the pain you've gone through. That Some of you guys have had miscarriages. Some of you guys have lost jobs. Some of you guys are going through horrible conflict. Some of you guys have estranged family relationships. Some of you guys are just hurting and in pain. And yet you raise your hand and you sing, and you proclaim the excellencies of what God has done for you. That even though life has changed uh, under your footing, even though you're going through the ringer, you will still say, God is still excellent because he's transferred me out of darkness and into light. Because I love it when Chris sings. I love it when Sire plays Humble King. But they don't have anything on you guys worshiping and seeing you sing. When you proclaim the excellencies of God, something amazing happens together. This is worship. So church, hear me on this. I'm not saying you guys can't worship alone in your car, listening to Caleb, raising your hand, pumping your chest. Like you can do that. I'm not saying you can't do that. But what I am saying is that there is something about the presence of God that we miss if we don't worship together. In fact, I think it's gonna be really hard to do what first Peter is commanding us to do if we don't come together, Right? You can go online, you can listen to a sermon, you can catch a worship gathering on a live stream. I'm not saying those are bad things, but you cannot make spiritual sacrifices and you cannot proclaim the excellencies unless you come together. What Peter is commanding us to do here in worship is impossible unless we're together, right? Trying to get community through a screen is like showing up to Thanksgiving dinner, but standing out on the front lawn, peering in through the window while your family eats the meal and you just kind of stand outside and watch, I guess. I'm not saying there's anything bad with catching church online or live stream. I'm just saying you can't do community the way that the Bible says to do it through a screen. So if I may give some coaching again on this, when it comes to our two rhythms, when it comes to this gathering, guys, come early, stay late. Come early, stay late. 
Again, this idea that when we listen to other people proclaim the excellencies of what God has done for them, that inspires our worship. But here's the thing. You won't know that. You won't know other people proclaiming those excellencies unless you know the people that are worshiping in this gathering. The only way you're going to know that is if you talk to them. So come early, stay late, get to know people, listen to their story, invite them over for dinner, share your hurts and your struggles, proclaim the excellencies of what God has done in your life and ask them, what is God doing in your life? Because this is why we provide coffee and donuts every morning. It's not just so your kids can eat, although I know it helps my kids get to church quicker, right? It's, it's because it's more natural to have a conversation with somebody when you got coffee and a donut in your hand and get to know them. We designed this thing for community, not just a show. Additionally, when it comes to home groups, guys, don't treat them as Bible studies where you just show up to your home group or your connection group once a week, and that's the only time you see the people in that group. Guys, there's just no substitute for time spent together. You cannot manufacture presence and proximity. If you read the early church, guys, these guys were spending time together all of the time. We're never going to get to the community that they had unless we're willing to give up that time. And I'm not asking you to add something onto your schedule. Invite people into what you're already doing. Make memories. Celebrate birthdays. Go to sporting events. Have game nights. Start a fantasy football league and invite them over for, you know, food like, or whatever. Like, do something where you're spending time with people. And here's what I know. The more time you're going to spend with someone, the more time opportunities are going to arise for you to do good and for you to share what you have with that person and to do a spiritual sacrifice and worship together. Let me close with this. Verse four kicks off, a whole new, or kicks off this whole section of scripture when I read it. And it says this, as you come to him, a living stone. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say as you come to each other as living stones. It says as you come to him as the living stone. Who's that? That's Jesus. And as the text goes on, it's going to describe Jesus as a cornerstone. And what that meant was back then in that time, when you built a building, the most important stone that you laid was the first one, the cornerstone. Because if the cornerstone wasn't right, if the cornerstone wasn't strong enough, if you didn't make sure that all the edges and everything were right on the cornerstone, then the whole building would collapse. Guys, the same is true for the church. If Jesus isn't the cornerstone, this whole thing is going to collapse. And I think this is so crucial as it pertains to our core values, because if you notice, the first core value we have, it's not community. It's gospel. It's Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of this church. We gather to worship him. That means community is something we do as a response to the gospel. Our community is built on worship of Jesus. So it's Jesus first, then community. And guys, the reason I say that it's because I think so often what can happen in the church is that we reverse that order. We make community the cornerstone, and then we just sprinkle Jesus on top. I talk with so many people that will say something, oh, I'm just here to look for friends. I just wish I had people in my life stage. I just wish people were my age and knew what I was going through. And please listen to me. I'm not saying you can't have friends, people your age, people in your life stage, people know what you're going through. Pursue that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But what I am saying is that if you make that your primary desire and the primary purpose and focus of this church, if you make community the cornerstone and not Jesus, then this whole thing's going to collapse. Because I've got news for you. We will never live up to your expectations. 
Community is not built to hold everything that you were created for. I think people find the church wanting so many times because what they want from the church, they should be getting from Jesus. Guys, go to church, and if you, if you make your primary focus to make friends, you're going to end up worshiping your friends, and they're not meant for that. But if you go to church and you worship Jesus, guess what? Along the way, you're going to find friends who want to do the same. See how that works? Make Jesus first, not community. Let community flow out of the gospel. Furthermore, if we gather here because we're trying to find people who look like us, talk like us, act like us, think like us, do the same things as us, right? Then we're going to have a community that makes total sense to this world out here. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Look at all these people and all the stuff they have in common. That makes sense why they're together. Because I don't, the Bible so often shows a community and a church that confounds the world. It doesn't make sense because it's filled with people who don't look like each other, who don't act like each other, who don't talk like each other. And the only thing that keeps them in common, the only thing that they reason they gather is because of Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but our world doesn't need us. It needs Jesus. And if we gather here for as a community, just for community's sake, then all we're giving the world is just us. But if we gather here as a community for Jesus, you know what we'll give the world? We'll give him Jesus. And he's the one that can change it. Because the great irony of community is that if you worship community, then we'll become ingrown. But if we worship Jesus, we'll be outward facing. Community doesn't just exist for us to make friends. Community exists for the world out there to know the friend of sinners, Jesus. Now, having said all that, I know that there's people here this morning who are struggling with community. You come into a place like this and you're like, I've been burned. I've tried to enter into a church and it doesn't feel like family. Those sins you listed out, John, I've been on the brunt end of them, right? I've I've been in positions where um, I've tried to, to, to worship alongside other people and I just feel so lonely. And to you, I just want to say this morning, don't give up on this thing called the church. Don't give up on community. Do you know why? Jesus didn't. Jesus knows exactly where you've been. Jesus lost all of his friends on the night he died. They all abandoned him. His family thought he was crazy and rejected him. His best friend, Peter, who's writing this letter, denied him. And on a cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be on the outside of community looking in. And yet he does not give up on us. Jesus chooses commitment over convenience. He is still building this thing called the church. He's still building this community despite all of our hangups. And if that's true, then Jesus hasn't given up on you either. So don't give up on him. Don't give up on community. Press in even when it's hard. Commit to this thing called the church, even through the thick and the thin, that that when we commit to each other, we might reflect Jesus to the world. Let's pray. Father, I know that um, Labor Day weekend is upon us, and I'm sure people are thinking about so many different things right now, whether it's uh, time at the lake tomorrow or food in their smokers this afternoon or um, just getting together with friends and enjoying uh, the sunshine before we turn to fall. But God, I pray that in the midst of all of that, we would look around this room and realize that what is gathering in this place right now 
is supernatural. Not because the campus common building has been blessed, but because we've been blessed. According to Ephesians, we've been given every blessing in the heavenly realms. And we have been given you. Your presence dwells within us. You are the one that builds this community. So God, despite all of our hangups on church and community and God, just struggling with what it means for us to commit, God, I pray that the idol of convenience, whatever that is for people, would fall by the wayside and that we would see that the church is beautiful, that we would commit to each other as a community knowing that, Jesus, you have committed to us. And would the world take notice and say, man, if that's what Jesus is like, I want to be a part of that. So God, do a work amongst us. In your son's mighty name that I pray, amen.